1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Lerner from the University of Southern California, and I'm delighted to introduce today's guest, Guy Miron. Guy Miron is Professor of History at the Open University in Israel. He's a prolific scholar with a broad range of interests in modern Jewish history, historiography, emancipation, anti-Semitism, and the Holocaust. He's written and edited many books and dozens of articles in several languages. Among his English language books are The Waning of Emancipation, Jewish History, Memory, and the Rise of Fascism in Germany, France, and Hungary, which appeared with Wayne State Press in 2011, a a volume he co-edited with Scott Urey, Anti-Semitism and the Politics of History, which just appeared with Brandeis University Press, and another co-edited book on Jewish historiography between past and future, 200 Years of Wissenschaft des Judentums, which came out with de Groeiter in 2019. Welcome, Guy. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Let me start by giving you an opportunity to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, about your path as a historian, and your interests and in the trajectory which, which led to your book, uh, which I should mention is called Time and Sp- Space and Time Under Persecution, the German-Jewish Experience in the Third Reich which appeared in English translation in 2023 with the University of Chicago Press.
2: Yeah, so um, I was uh, born and grew up in Jerusalem, uh, and my uh, training as a historian is uh, focused on, uh, on Jewish history, and I want to emphasize this. Of course, Jewish history is not a discipline. History is a discipline. Jewish history is a field, but it's not German history. Um, And whereas most of my colleagues dealing with German Jewish history in the States, in Germany, and also in Israel, are praying basically with German history because you have to be very deep inside the context, the sources, the uh, uh, arena of German history to deal with it. My training was focused on a larger scale on on Jewish history. Uh, So my tendency is uh, to deal a lot also with a comparative perspective, uh, after reading a few books about German Jewish history, I will read also about Jews in Poland, in France, and even in North Africa and Iraq. And some of my articles and uh, part of my scholarship I tend to, uh, uh, to be more uh, comparative. I think this has to do also with my tendency for a more long, direct question. And even in this book, which deals only with 12 years, I try to ask some of the questions you know, from the perspective of a more, more, more long, dure Take some of the concepts. That I used and trying to do it in a, a more wider uh, perspective. Uh, my first uh, book, based on my dissertation, which was published only in Hebrew, some articles are published in English, That with uh, memoirs and autobiographies of German Jews uh, who uh, left Germany, left mostly Nazi Germany, sometimes Weimar Germany, immigrated to Palestine, and wrote their life stories uh, uh, in uh, Palestine slash Israel. And I tried to use some uh, tools from uh, literature, from different cultural studies, from psychology, from literature, to analyze the way they reconstructed their life stories in uh, a variety of ways. And then I turned in my second monograph, which was published in English, as you mentioned, to a comparative perspective, uh, analyzing uh, German Jewry, French Jewry, and Hungarian Jewry uh, under the age of fascism and trying to see how they use the uh, historical narratives, mostly in the Jewish press, in these different Jewish communities, in order to uh, 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 shape their uh, cultural uh, uh, comments and they coming to terms with the the rise of uh, fascism in the 1930s, early 1940s. And this is now my my third monograph.
1: And I think the, um, in a sense, what you mentioned at the beginning is really interesting to me that you approach this as really a historian of Modern Jewish history, as opposed to a Germanist, um, which is the background of many of the scholars who work in the history of Nazi Germany. And one sees that in, in this book very much that you're thinking about time and kind of the Jewish calendar, the, the rhythms, that kind of a uh, you're bringing a perspective that I think is often lost by people who are less familiar with um, either Jewish religious traditions or kind of broader patterns in Jewish history. Uh, so that really. Appears um, throughout the book. And I think that's maybe before we get deeper into the book, I I wanted to ask you about the process of translation, because um, of course, this book was um, originally written in Hebrew. And if I'm not mistaken, it appeared in 2021. And I think a more literal translation of the title might be Being Jewish, uh, Being Jewish in Nazi Germany, Place and Time, as opposed to. Um, the way it's rendered here in space and time under persecution, is there some? Was that just a choice to, because of the way it sounds in English, or is there more to the change in title um, from being Jewish to space and
2: time? Um, I think it's most of the way it sounds in English. I think sometimes if you translate things too well, literally, they it doesn't sound so good in the other language, but. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, it, I'm I'm a very native Israeli. I should confess. I mean, English is my second language. I didn't spend a long time in the in the United States, so uh, I really need a professional translator in this case. And I chose Hein Watzman. I think he's one of the best. And I really uh, deeply thank him for for for, for this uh, professional work. It was an intensive process of dialogue between us. You know, I didn't just give leave give leave this to him. He came back to me time and again. And he happened to find a lot of uh, mistakes and bugs that in the Hebrew version I didn't find. And because of the process of translation, which was so intensive, uh, in a way, the English version is more uh, uh, is a little more accurate. Uh, and through the translation, you think about the book again. I mean, because when you translate yourself, you have to think again uh, about, uh, about the same things just to let you... Uh, 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 to give you an example about I have function in different languages, sometimes when I get to a conference in the United States or in front of English audience, I, I prepare the lecture in Hebrew. And I translate it while reading it to the public. And this is much more vivid than just you know, taking the text and reading the text, which is quite boring in a way. Because when you translate, you think about the things again and you recreate it. And this is also the process of uh, working with Chaim uh, with this book and uh, making it uh, possible.
1: That seems like such a a much more lively process, more dynamic process, and must make a paper much more interesting for the listeners as well. Um, I think also what's interesting is that the book, most of your sources are in German language. So when you originally wrote the book, you were often going from German to Hebrew. And now you're going from German to English, maybe sometimes through the Hebrew. Um, And I wonder because. Yeah,
2: but I I had to check again all the sources where the process of translation. And in many cases, my translator doesn't read German. But in many cases, he made me go back again to the sources and check again and see if I was accurate. Uh, uh, accurate. And by the way, I'm now in the process of translating the book to German, from Hebrew to German. So my German translator is also very good. Almut Laufer also forced me to go back again to the sources and check everything again. And each time you do it, you find a little more uh, bugs and you're more accurate. But this is, uh, this is a process. Uh, eventually, you have to publish the book.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and I guess because language is so important to right, you're doing so much textual analysis in the book. I, I think that that must make translation questions really urgent in some cases, right?
2: Definitely. Uh, my first book, which was published also in English, "The Waning of Emancipation," I did the translation myself, and like, then I took an editor. And this process was much was much less less dialogue, and I don't know. You have to read it uh, to tell you what you think about, but this time it was much, much, I didn't say, I don't think it was was a smoother process, but it was much more intellectual and deeper process because of the dialogue.
1: That makes sense. And the result is quite smooth. I mean, it's very elegantly written in the English. um, Absolutely. And so perhaps now we could get a little bit more into the content and the thinking behind the book. And I'm, if I could just ask you to kind of introduce the concepts this way, uh, perhaps what, um, in your opinion, doing an analysis of Jewish life in Nazi Germany, which foregrounds categories such as space and time, what does that add to our understanding of the period? Or um, perhaps you could tell us why you pick these particular categories as as your key analytical concepts.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was I'm deeply invested in this uh, period in the sources long before I came to this book. And they, um, and I wanted to do something new and not more of the same. And it took me time to think about it. Um, during the time in which I thought about the book and which the idea came to me before, and, you know, it began with the articles and uh, and the long process. I was more in touch with uh, scholars from cultural studies, from uh, social studies, than with historians. And my challenge was to ask a question which will be of interest not only to other historians of German Jewelry or to other historians of Germany, but will interest also my friend who is a sociologist or anthropologist, and will create a dialogue between us. And this was my departure point. Uh, And I found that some of their works, of the people dealing with a more contemporary, more theoretical perspective about, you know, current Israeli society or American society or, or, or German society and so on, are asking many questions that we historians are not asking. And since the sources in my period, so to say, in the period of German Jews under the Holocaust, and we have to get back to it and maybe explain why the sources are so rich, because we deal with a bourgeois society with a huge cultural fortune, even in this terrible situation. uh, This is kind of a laboratory that I can go back in time and ask the same question that some of the uh, scholars are asking today about Korean society. Just uh, to give an example, it was more than 10 years ago that I had a lecture about the uh, central bus station in Tel Aviv analyze through time and space, and I said, if they can do it about the central bus station in Tel Aviv, maybe I can take it to my uh, 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 to my topics. Uh, initially, I thought mostly about time. This was the the initial idea of of the project, uh, and this in a way continued my previous project about usable past of uh, uh, the Jews in in uh, in Germany and in, in other countries. So the chapter about Jewish holidays. The way Jews recreated the Jews recreated the, uh, the calendar was the beginning of this project. But then I thought, no, uh, it's not enough because this could be maybe an article. But if I want to deal with the uh, uh, calendars, uh, this has to be more theorized. So I have to read about time. So I began to read about the sociology of time and Robert Elias, Aviatar and many other scholars dealing with it. And then I also looked for historians dealing with questions of time, for example. Uh, uh, the books of one ozuf about uh, time and space in the French uh, Revolution, another book dealing with uh, Elizabethan England, and then I realized that they do time and space together, and in a way, it is basically the same question with two sides of the coin, so I have to get back, and and then like, you you come and read the sources and you see how these things are combined. This is, in a way... Um, the, the way I go to this topic and when I go to the sources, and I give you the best example, which is uh, Victor Klemperer. You know, Victor Klemperer is uh, the most famous diarist, a uh, 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 Jewish uh, converted, but Jew, uh, Jew, uh, Jewish Jewish uh, diarist during the uh, period I dealt with. And he's so much researched. And uh, great great scholars like Stephen Aschheim, my uh, teacher, and many others wrote about him. And before coming to read Klemperer, I said, what can I do new about Klemperer? But when I came with this new question, so the questions like Lemper's Jewish identity or political views were not of my interest. I had much more specific questions to ask him. And I thought, I, I found out that they have a treasure, that they are so many new things I didn't think about. When you come with this new question, you with these new analytical tools, and use the theoretical literature on the one hand, uh, the um, social studies scholarship on the other hand, and also the historians that with other periods. And it wasn't done in the period I deal with. This was the frame of reference for me to begin the uh, the work.
1: I see that really comes across in the analysis, and that you're you're constantly drawing on historiography and kind of other theoretical currents to really enliven this particular discussion. And since you bring up Klempera, I, I, I did notice that in the book that I, I'm familiar with the diaries, and I also read a lot of the first kind of wave of scholarship about them, but I never saw this in them until I read your book. And I think you um, one of your real contributions is shedding new light on some of the familiar sources, but at the same time, you bring in some sources that are not familiar, or at least much less familiar. And so I wondered if you Could talk a little bit about how you chose the sources and what um, there's a kind of range from probably Klepper is the most familiar to some that are really obscure today and kind of where you found them, how you decided what to include and what not to include.
2: Yeah, so basically, I had two major corpuses of sources and additional, but basically, two main major corpuses. One is ego documents, which included diaries and correspondences, I didn't deal too much with memoirs as I mentioned before my first uh, book was dealing only with memoirs but I think when we want to analyze time you you cannot really use the uh, retrospective perspective you have to t- to, uh, to to read the things as they were written during the time uh, that that uh, the, the people are uh, writing about so uh, a lot of uh, Ego a, a, a documents. I think I should uh, make a separation between the diaries and the correspondences, because most of the diaries are written by men, and more specifically, the diaries which are more intensive, like Victor Klemperer and Hans and, and uh, Hanskoll, my my uh, uh, and Willikon, sorry, uh, uh, Victor Klemperer and Vidicon, my two major uh, 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 heroes, I would say, both were written by men. Uh, around my age, around 50 to 60, uh, struggling with their age, by the way, I found it very interesting. I mean, I would say maybe because of the period, maybe because because time was changing, I feel myself much younger than they felt themselves. But this may be because, you know, people live longer today, maybe because of the circumstances. But they are, you know, intellectuals, and all intellectuals are also frustrated even before the Nazi period. So I found myself... uh, quite associated with them, but this is my comfort zone. So I wanted to expand it. And I went to, to look for other diaries of, you know, more simple people, people coming from the periphery, not so uh, educated, younger people, and of course, women. Uh, uh, and it, it's more difficult to find longer, uh, diaries of women. Let me explain why by uh, going back to Vili Vilicon Vili is writing a lot about his daily life and also mentioning his wife, and he's always complaining not always, time and again complaining that she doesn't have time to talk to him because and, and to, to he is he's is not able to share with her all his uh, 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 reflections, but if you read the diary uh, uh, and understand how they live their life, she is making it possible for him to find the time to write his diary and to write his scholarship because she's taking care of their daughters, and 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 this division of labor between uh, Jewish men and women in this very bourgeois society, created the situation that women diaries, they exist, but not so like uh, diaries of men. And this is why correspondences, family correspondences, are much more balanced in the, in the, uh, from the general perspective. And this was a very important tool uh, uh, for me. And I would say even that because, as you know, women live longer, and I will add to this, that Jewish men, because of the Nazi anti-Jewish policy, which culminated during the Reichsprogramm uh, in November, were more endangered. So they tended to leave Germany more than women. So more older women remain in Germany and have a fewer correspondences of Jewish women to their children uh, uh, living, uh, living abroad, reaching even until the early 1940s, a very rich uh, source, which in a way balanced my uh, uh, more... Uh, uh, men oriented uh, 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 Diaries to this I will have to I, I will add the second ca- uh, uh, second uh, uh, major uh, 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 um, corpus of uh, sources which is uh, Jewish press Jewish actually public arena uh, and uh, the Jewish press and in, in the Nazi Germany one of the things I'm doing in my one of my uh, projects in the in the, uh, the national uh, uh, Institute of Holocaust Richards at Yad Vashem, this is my additional uh, uh, position, is uh, editing a series of articles about Jewish press in Nazi Germany, which is a very, very rich uh, source. Uh, uh, and if you're not involved in this uh, period, you might be surprised, but the Nazis enabled Jews quite a free press as long as, as they did, did uh, with political topics, at least until nine, mid-1935, and in more internal topics until 1938, and you have to, you can find a lot of reflections about the questions of time and space uh, in in the Jewish press, and also uh, it represents the different political views, uh, the Zionists, the more liberals, the German patriots. Uh, it also presents you have you have a press, we have women uh, press, women's uh, women uh, 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 magazines were very central in my. Uh, 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 in my scholarship and I would generally say that the uh, personal uh, sources, the Ego documents were more uh, descriptive whereas the press is basically more prospective they are telling the Jews how they should behave in a way and trying to educate the children and trying to tell the women how to function and I think that the combination of these two sources made me uh, 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 quite uh, gave me quite a rich perspective I used the little pictures one of my colleagues here in, uh, in Jerusalem, Professor Ofosh Ashkenazi, is doing parallel to me, a project using extensively pictures, and we're also cooperating. We published an article together. We might do another school, uh, research uh, together. This is another very rich uh, source from the uh, period.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: This discussion also really brings out elements like gender and social class, which flow out of the material themselves, I think, in really natural ways. I, I appreciated your attention to these categories throughout the discussion. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that a little bit more. I mean, it seems like on on the, on the on one hand, what you're saying is that men, men were both victimized, Jewish men were both victimized more by the Nazi regime, but also had a certain level of privilege by virtue of their gender that they could sit down and assemble their thoughts, continue reading, continue to function as intellectuals in a way, while women were Doing the work that made their sur- the the survival of the family possible in a way, the going outside, gathering provisions, keeping keeping things together and uh, and class as well because many of the protagonists of your book are people who have a level of education, a uh, level of leisure time that they can that their thoughts are kind of worth transmitting and so I wondered if um you know how class really functions in, uh, it seems that class and gender are very connected to space and time in in all kinds of ways in the analysis. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that even more.
2: Yeah, I can cry. I would add to this also the, uh... A a, a perspective of of location of where you live, because if you live in Berlin, if you live in a a, a medium time like you know, Nierenberg or Karlsruhe, and if you live in a small village, it's a very different perspective. And the experience of Jews in Nazi Germany was uh, very different. Uh, First, uh, dealing with the uh, uh, gender question, I think Jewish men were victimized twice. Once, or actually the second time was when the Nazi policy, especially in the last uh, years, uh, the 1930s, especially uh, during the pogrom was much more harsh towards Jewish men. But in the first place, because the pre-1933 1930s so bourgeois harsh uh, division of labor, which made a, a, a most uh, bourgeois men having careers, whereas women dealt with daily life, and, uh, and dealing with reproduction. I mean, there were some women doing careers, there were some women uh, Jewish intellectuals, yeah, Eva Reichman uh, and, and, and a few others, but mostly Jewish men had more to lose. So for Jewish men, and Mario Kaplan is writing it in their uh, fascinating social uh, history analysis uh, of, of this period, which were much, much more traumatized already in 1933 because the routine was much more severely and violently cut, whereas for many or most of the Jewish women who had to take care of, of daily life, domestic life, children, they continued in more difficult situations, but they continued their daily life, whereas the Jewish men had to reinvent themselves, even in the condition of 1933, before the pogroms, before, before the concentration came. And this also encouraged them to write. I mean, I think that definitely Klemperer and Kohn, are, which wrote the diaries even before, are much more invested in writing their diaries after 1933 because of this uh, cultural shock, because they're in a way more, 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 more uh, uh, offended. In a way, writing diaries is the way of the bourgeois, intellectual, educated person to express his helplessness, in a way. Whereas uh, Jewish women, in a way, are less helpless, at least in the first in the first years. And when it comes to agency in the more practical sense, this is expressed in the correspondence sense. So women are very active, as mostly as, as mothers, uh, as siblings writing to relatives, and they are very active in correspondences, not less than men. When I come to class, it's more difficult because people from uh, lower classes and for less educated, uh, you cannot find so many sources. I mean, this is a, a, a very easy to, to say. Even those who were writing in smaller places, in smaller cities, sometimes in, uh, uh, I wouldn't say really villages, but uh, small uh, towns, are mostly the more bourgeois element of uh, of of the society. About the others, you might know something from the Jewish press, from the local Jewish press. But here again, most of the Jewish press is concentrated in the cities. But we have to remember, German Jewry was very urbanized. One third of all German Jews lived only in Berlin in 1933. And if you go to 1938, it's even more than one third, maybe 40, 45%. So also the representation in relative numbers is is, is different.
1: Right, and I wondered if you could also talk a little bit about how, how space, as you describe it in the book, really narrows for German Jews and um, kind of what the experience of a more constricted space how that was perceived, how that was expressed in some of your sources.
2: Yeah, so my analysis of of space, which is the first part of the book with three chapters is always a tension between on the one hand, the narrowing of the space uh, because of the Nazi persecution policy and the social uh, atmosphere on the one hand, and on the other hand, the agency of Jews struggling to recreate their space even though this uh, uh, terrible circumstance. And this tension is a very fundamental topic I was interested in, because if I dealt, if I was dealing only with the Jews as victims, I think it would be less interesting and, uh, and innovative. I mean, the tension between the two. And I said that writing the diaries is, 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 is expressing helplessness, but writing a diaries is also expressing agency. And writing a diary is also creating a space, not a physical space, but a a mental space. And one of the articles I published uh, as part of this project dealt exactly with this, with writing as creating a a, a space as part of this agency. So helplessness is only one part of this. So... um, very uh, simply uh, as the nazis, nazis come to power the public space is being more and more restricted to uh, to german jews it's very different in different places actually in berlin in the bigger cities it takes more time and jews can be more flexible and more uh, seen in the public space until the mid even the late 1930s in smaller places it's much more immediate and total i mean you could find places that after a few uh, weeks of the Nazi regime, the central and only Platz in the city is called Adolf Hitler Platz. And it is forbidden for Jews to be in Adolf Hitler Platz, which means they have to be close at home and uh, maybe in their small personal yard and don't, don't have a public space uh, anymore. But if you go to the major cities, it's, it's very different. It's not only the street, but you can think about many uh, other public spaces. I'll give one or two examples. I had a uh, uh, part of the first uh, chapter dealing with public spaces is dealing with libraries we talked about intellectuals so for Kahn and uh, uh, Klemperer uh, being uh, scholars in the 1930s the library was actually the center of their daily life and the experience of being expelled from uh, the library step by step is a terrible experience of narrowing their not only their uh, physical space but also their mental space and the way they create their daily life and both of them were traumatized and victimized because of this on the one hand, and each one of them find a fascinating way to reinvent himself and his daily routine as a scholar and an intellectual after this happened. I mean, Klepper said, okay, I cannot continue my uh, research about uh, French literature in the 18th century because I don't have access to these sources anymore. So I will write my curriculum vitae and I I will write about my personal life and create it as a scholar. And I will write about the Nazi language as a scholar. And I will write uh, in my diary a lot of insights about any book I can find as a scholar. By the way, he wrote a lot about books about Zionism and Jewish history, not because he was interested in them, but because this is the material he found. So he wrote about it. If he would find books about Chinese history, he would do it as well. This was his way to survive and to recreate his his agency. Another topic that I found fascinating in Klemper's diary, and also in additional sources, uh, dealt with the uh, experience of, of, of driving. I mean, Jews were, this is 1930s, Part of the Nazi revolution is the autobahns and the uh, uh, the, uh, expanding the uh, possibilities of many Germans to drive. And some of the Jews initially joined this revolution. And Klemperer is, is, is acquiring... driving license in 1934 35 and he's writing so much about his driving this is exactly what if you read klepper in the more traditional way looking for his political views or jewish identity you would just skip this part about driving it's not interesting but if your question is space this is the most fascinating uh, experience to read about his driving experience as as initiative of creating space. And then about how, how so much victimized in late 2038 when as a Jew, he cannot uh, drive anymore. And then it is converted to outflux, uh, to going uh, uh, in the evening uh, with his wife uh, for long night walks until the night curfew uh, for Jews is uh, forbidden to go out until nine or eight, uh, or 8 p.m. again struggling to recreate or to use maximum space possible in spite of these circumstances and again you can find a lot of expression to this also in the other sources in the press in the correspondences.
1: As someone who lives in California, I can really relate to this idea of driving you know the car as a kind of the vehicle of freedom of of course the reality is one sits in traffic or so forth. But in theory, right, it's your, yeah. your this connection between driving and kind of liberation and agency is, I think, on some level kind of a universal a universal association. Um, and I see.
2: Yeah, I commute every day from uh, Jerusalem to Ramana, So sometimes you're stuck in the traffic jam. But sometimes uh, this is the time I hear your, my podcasts. And I feel uh, my my thoughts are flowing much more than you know, sitting even in the library and working and concentrated. Something is in, is more open. Your your uh, horizon is, is more open, and it's it's really fun. I would say
1: absolutely, and, it also... and
2: after after 1938, some time and again, Klepper is dreaming about his car. I mean, it's it's it became something so intimate for him. Uh huh.
1: And I was thinking along the same lines uh, at the height of COVID restrictions, when so many spaces were sealed off. There's at least walking, right? Suddenly, everyone's walking and experiencing the city that way, and seeing things in their neighborhoods they hadn't seen before. But you know, walking just just like for some of your protagonists, walking kind of becomes a last resort when when physical spaces are are often closed.
2: Walking is the last resort before it's even impossible to do this, or you don't do it anymore because you don't feel safe. And then the last resource is is the domestic. Uh, uh, space and being being uh, uh, closed at home, and since you mentioned COVID, I would say that I finished writing the book in Hebrew before COVID, but all the process of editing it, it was during the period of COVID, and it made me think again about all the topics in the book, the public space, the domestic space, and the flow of time, because all of us during COVID didn't feel the flow of time as we felt it before or as we feel it now. Something was not working at this time. And when I uh, read about my protagonists, they had the same experience in in totally different circumstances, of course, much more harsh, but this uh, glimpse of history that we all experienced in COVID. And I think that most of us were privileged to be in a relatively safe situation and eventually got the vaccine and came back to our life maybe make it a little more open to experience what they felt. And this makes me able make to say something important about my the way I see uh, uh, this book. I think that until now we didn't use the term Holocaust. And I want to say that I feel very comfortable about it But because I don't deny the Holocaust, of course, but I don't use it so much as a historical term. It's better for me to speak about Jews in Nazi Germany. It's both good enough and bad enough. And, and if you speak about Jews in Nazi Germany, it's more easy and more uh, 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 self-evident to compare them and to use other scholar, other scholarship works like, you know, French Revolution or the Battle in England on the same level. Whereas st- sometimes when you use the term Holocaust, it's in a way from uh, 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 um, other historical discourses I'm making in something very different. And this is, this is what I did not want to do.
1: That brings up another question I've been thinking about which is the applicability of this these changes in perception of space and time to other situations where people are living in under persecution where people are living where their movements are restricted or they're not entitled to full enjoyment of rights as the other populations are and I, I'm sure you've thought about how unique the situation of German Jews and the consequential altering of Ideas of space and time—how unique that is, and how compar- or how comparable it is to other experiences of persecution.
2: Yeah, I think uh, in terms of experiencing this, I I don't like to use the word unique when you speak about history because everything is unique, so nothing is unique, and it's in, in a way tasteless. This is, this is actually expressing what I think about the uniqueness of the Holocaust as a as a research category. You know, you can use it politically, but. I, I don't I don't feel comfortable with this. <laughs> of course, that you know, if you think about refugees uh, in different situations, they are of course experiencing this. And you know, we are now talking in December 23. Uh, I'm in Jerusalem, there is a war here and the experience of time and space of people in Israel and people in Gaza, people in the territories in the West Bank. Uh, people under occupation, they are highly restricted in different ways. I mean, of course, ev- everybody is, 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 is experiencing uh, this experience of time and space. And if we go to even more prosaic situation, you know, if somebody is uh, commuting and uh, during the time I read, I, I wrote uh, the, the first two chapters, the chapter about the domestic space, I happened to be commuting more intensively than now and spent some of the nights... Not at my home, but in uh, nearby ranana And then the question about what is home and where is my home? Is home where I sleep? Is home where my where I do this and that? Is home where my uh, 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 belongings, where, where my stuff is? Um, in one of the seminars, I talked about the book. I was asked about, uh, you know, people living the old people living their homes, going to, uh, uh, to uh, old age homes and having, to give up most of their property, how I analyze their experiences. It's, it's, you know, we're talking about human beings and there is no human being without experiencing time and space. So what is so to say unique in my case? I don't think that what is unique is that it was the most terrible situation, a many terrible situations in history. I think what is very interesting here and make my my, uh, uh, work fruitful and interesting is the fact that we speak about a very bourgeois society of people with very uh, uh, high quality cultural fortune and education in ways of, and modes of expression and developed public space that were in a very short time because of political situation signaled and, and taken out of the rest of the society and experienced very harsh limitation in their time and space and were still able very intensively to document it. I think this is quite unique. The pace, the way of documentation, the cultural fortunes of these people, all this together, I think makes, makes it a very fruitful uh, case study. But I really, I will be really happy that as I use, you know, works about French Revolution and Elizabethan English, other scholars doing, I don't know, uh, uh, East Asian history, time and space would use my uh, work as well.
1: I think that's a very thoughtful approach to the kind of getting past the hang-up of uniqueness and looking at kind of um I I see sort of seeing much broader relevance here and not getting caught in these traps, which as you say are maybe political or even theological questions, but not not really historical questions or questions for historical research. And I think if if you don't mind, I'd like to just come back to time for a, a, a bit and um in it there's this sort of paradox in our discussion of space that you pointed out uh, or a tension between being restricted and agency and and kind of active you know uh, struggling against those restrictions and i wondered if you could say the same sort of a parallel tension in your discussion of time where this population is experiencing a both an acceleration of time as you describe it and a slowing of time and this kind of feeling of being of waiting indefinitely again in ways that i think many of us can relate to from the covid experience or from other experiences where we're kind of taken out of what what is normal to us but um i so i'm very interested in in that tension as well
2: yeah okay so we speak about both the acceleration and deceleration process and again coming back to i think the most fundamental topic in my book which is helplessness versus agency which i think is is very crucial so in a way Acceleration of time until you cannot control it anymore. And deceleration of time until that you feel not alive anymore are two signs of the same coin. You lose your agency. If you're very you know, if you limit, you close at home, you can't do anything, you have to wait and wait and wait and wait. And time is decelerated and very passing very, very slowly. I don't want to imagine the way, for example, the prisoners now in Gaza. Or people in waiting helplessness that, that the war will be over. I experience in time. This is helplessness, and time is going very, very slowly. Sometimes and, and terribly slowly. And you again, you lose your agency. On the other hand, you have to decide immediately what to do in order to save your life. You have to decide immediately. In one of the cases that I discovered of the book, if you immigrate to the Philippines or to China or to South America, and there's you know one day, and you have to decide about the future of your family. And if you don't do it, you. Uh, you just lose uh, your life. This is a, again a way to lose, uh, to lose control and to feel to feel helpless. Still, some of the uh, protagonists of my books are approaching it and trying to say, you know, I will find the best way to use my time. Uh, I will find the best way to make my time meaningful. And if time is, is moving very very quickly, I will find the way to use life in the best way because this is what is you know giving to me uh, by. I don't know, by God or by, by whoever. Uh, 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 this is what I have, and I will make this uh, meaningful. And again, I'll get back to Klemperer, because you know, he's expressing it so beautifully in one of the entries of his diary when he's writing, I think it's, it's around autumn 1942, and he's quite sure that this might be the last entry of his diary before they will take him away. Eventually, it didn't happen. He said, you know, I have a lot of time. I sit at home, I write, you know his, so to say, scholarship uh, about his uh, curriculum vita, about his, uh, uh, about the way he sees uh, Nazi language, the diary writing. I write, I read. My life in me is meaningful. I'm a happy man. Pe- I'm a happy person, and his life was so miserable, but but. Making his is is the time meaningful. And this is why he did not want to go to any work that they offered him to get some money and meet people and say, No, I'm busy. I have work to do. I want to fill my routine in a meaningful way, and this will make me happy. I think it's it's quite heroic anyway.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Um I I think I should probably not take too much more of your time. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about other projects that you you alluded to a couple of them in the discussion already, but other projects that you're working on and what your current research interests are.
2: Yeah, I will mention, uh, first of all, the book that you mentioned in the beginning uh, that I co-edited with my uh, friend and colleague, Scott Uri from Tel Aviv University. Uh, And and just now when there's, again, a lot of discourse about antisemitism, we published a book of articles uh, relating to the thesis of uh, David Engel, about using or not using the term anti-Semitism and what exactly do we mean when we use it and maybe we shouldn't use it anymore. Uh, and there's a bunch of, of, of articles dealing with it. And in this case, I must confess, I was quite happy to be the editor and not one of the contributors because I'm still not sure what I think about this, this question. Uh, in a way, if you ask me about current anti-Semitism, what I think about the a position of Jews today, um, my answer will be, you know, I'm a historian, let's talk about it in, in, in 70 years. Still, I think this book dealing with the various question and I, we collected the uh, ideas of when scholarship was very interesting. And the, uh, my next uh, project that I want to, uh, I hope to do with my colleague of Ashkenazi that I mentioned, will we'll, we'll be get back to this period. And in a way, it's it, it was created from part of the uh, uh, dealing with space. And trying to uh, go deeper f- from the top to, to the context of environment and nature, and to ask how German Jews experienced the environment and nature as part of belonging to Germany, even if we go back to you know the Kaiserreich, the late 19th century, uh, all the process of uh, Naturschutz in Germany versus urbanization, how the Jews were part of this or not part of it. And then how it developed until the uh, Nazi period here. I think also we can do it from the uh, perspective of the individuals and the perspective of the community and also using, uh, like uh, I, I mentioned before, uh, more visual uh, uh, pictures. I hope this will be my my next project. This is what we plan.
1: Uh, that's something I very much look forward to. And this it seems to me that it's. It's about time to bring more of an environmental perspective to this this period of history. And I think uh, the results of this research should be really broadly relevant. So it's it's exciting to hear about that. Um, So yes, um, I want to thank you so much for your time. It's been really a pleasure to discuss this, to read this book, to spend some time with it, and to uh, have this discussion today. So um, thank you very much, Guy.
2: Thank you both.